If you have your Bible, you can begin to work your way to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. So excited about this. This is where the story's been going on now all year. We actually started this gospel last Christmas, and so uh, now we're in the final scenes, and, and Matthew's going to dramatically slow down the narrative. This, this passage that we're going to look at is, is the epicenter of history. In fact, uh, Matthew's been uh, trying to show from the very first line where he says this is the genealogy of, uh, of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the very first line, what Matthew's been trying to show is everything has been pointing to Jesus. Even before David, before Abraham, everything has been pointing to Jesus. When our first parents sinned in the garden and, and rebelled against God and brokenness and, and sin and death came into the world, God had a plan even before that. And Matthew's been laboring to show that. And Jesus has come as, as the anointed one, the Messiah, and he's, he's taught about the kingdom, and it's an upside-down kingdom, and, and he's, he's lived out the kingdom, and he's healed the sick and, and comforted the poor and the destitute. He's done all those things. But this two passages, two chapters, are the most important chapters, all of the gospel. In fact, all of history is pointing to this. In fact, not just in the past, but, but Jesus is going to give us a tool uh, in this passage to, to point back. So it's all coming back to this epicenter. So we're going to slow down a little bit and look at this moment together. But there is a danger that, that we face, uh, I think, as 21st century American Christians. I, I call it uh, vending machine theology. When you go to a vending machine, you look at the whole thing and you pick what you want and, and that's what you do. That's what vending machines' purposes are. But, but, but we can kind of build that into our theology and our church and we'll say, well, what do I like? Well, what do I want? And, and just begin to pick those things out. And, and like a kid who thinks it would be an amazing thing to just eat Halloween candy for their whole life, we know in the end that's not for their good. That's why here at Redemption Park, as much as we can, we, we try to teach through the whole counsel of God's word. That means that, that when we gather, for, for example, for a year, we work through the entirety of Matthew's gospel. Now, there are times where we pause and, and do other things, but in the most part, we want to have the full meal that God is offering up to us. And Jesus is going to offer us a meal. And he's going to say, this is the most important thing. Because here's the deal, all of us have trials and struggles and pressure financially or, or relationally or at work, and, and sometimes it's really just nice to come and, and you know, the, the passage just seems to talk specifically to those things, and you feel like God just ha had your back. And then there's other times where you're like, I don't know, it doesn't seem that relevant to me, it doesn't seem uh, that important, I, I've really got to work on this other thing. I, I was hoping the pastor would skip over that passage. But if we're going to believe Jesus, he's going to say this is the most important thing because all those other things, if you get this perspective, all those other things will come into perspective as well. This is going to be the story of God. We need God to set the agenda. And as we look at this passage, there's going to be several characters that, are going, that the camera's going to pan to at different times. One, like, like a good movie, that it's going to, that there's a character that you never actually see, but you see him controlling all things. That's the father. He's in control. He's got sovereign control. We're going to see the religious leaders and the political leaders, and they're going to rise up, and they're going to look like they have power and control. 
And they're going to exercise that for evil purposes. We're going to look, the camera's going to pan to the disciples and all their ups and downs, just like you and me with our ups and downs through this whole thing. And then it's going to pan to Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus with his steadfast, resolute love and glad obedience going to the cross. But there is one more character in this. Kind of faintly, if you look deep enough, if you go deeper into the text, you'll, you'll see that Matthew's very intentional about this. And the other character is you. You're going to be in the story. This is the story of God. It's not about you per se, but you get to find your place in the story. This is the grand story. We have the best story, I always say. Every great piece of literature, every movie, every superhero movie, it, it is all a faint echo of this story that we're going to just kind of slow down in over the next month and look at the grand narrative of the passion of the Christ. And so we want to ponder the passion this morning, ponder the sovereignty of God, ponder the responsibility of man, you and me, and ponder the steadfast, glad obedience of Jesus. And so with that, invite you to look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Even before I do that, I want to just pray for our time, asking the Spirit to do His work. So Father, we do come before you now in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I am keenly aware of my inadequacies in speech and otherwise to communicate the depths of what this passage means and should mean to each of us. So Lord, I pray that you would make that clear to us now. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to comprehend, and embrace what you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, and the steadfast love of Christ in this passage. So in Matthew chapter 26, he starts it off. He says, when Jesus had finished all these things, his teachings done, He's no longer going to teach anyone about the kingdom. When he had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. He says, disciples, you know, two days is the high point of our Jewish calendar. It is normally a time of celebration. It's normally a time where families gather and have a very prescribed meal, not unlike our Thanksgiving, where you have certain things and certain parts of the meal, but even more so for 1,400 years, the people of God had been observing the Passover. They had been remembering through kind of a catechism uh, of what, by the way, we skipped that this morning, but a catechism of what is, um, what is true. And so there would be a call and response. There would be someone directing it and, and it would be prescribed. And if you'd done it long enough, you would know the exact words that should be coming next and next and next. And you know what you eat, when you eat. And Jesus says, you know, the Passover is coming. And in two days, the Son of Man will be crucified. The Passover is this remembrance of the 10 plagues God had sent on the Egyptians who had enslaved God's people. And and the last plague was the destroying angel was going to (coughs) come. But he said, Israelites, Egyptians, you all deserve the wrath of God. And so it's nothing in you, but, but because of my sheer mercy and grace, if you take an unblemished lamb and you sacrifice it and you take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your home, when the angel comes, he will pass over your house and you will be spared and you'll be delivered and you'll be set free. 
And so just heightened in the air is this idea that a sacrifice to cover our sins is in the air. And Jesus says, on this day, the Son of Man is going to be sacrificed. And again, you start to see off camera that, that, that this is God orchestrating all things of all the days of the year. It's this day for 1,400 years have been pointing to this day. All of those sacrifices would have been a shadow pointing to a substance. See, the disciples would have come down the Mount of Olives and crossed over the Kidron Valley, and there would have been a stream there. But at this time, the, the stream would have run red with the blood of all the thousands of lambs. And the disciples would have had to leap over the stream or pick up their tunics so that their, their, their sandals and their tunics don't get dragged in the blood of the lamb. I mean, it was a scene. It was, it was the epicenter of their faith. And so Jesus says, you know that's going to happen. Now, Jesus has told them this before, but even now they still don't know what all that means. But then look, there's other characters. Verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders and the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So the religious leaders, who should be the most prepared, most anticipatory of the coming of the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, they're plotting his death. I mean, they're just wicked men at this point. Look at verse 5. But they said, not during the feast, not during the Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. They knew Jesus was popular. He had quite a crowd come in from Galilee. And they said, whatever we do, when we get him, I got to get my water, sorry. Whatever we do, when we get him, make sure it's not on the Passover. So that's their will. And who do you think is going to win that battle? God or them? Well, you probably already know the story. We see that God is going to accomplish his purposes on his time exactly as he planned since the foundation of the world. We see that God is sovereign. In fact, about 50 days from this point, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection at Pentecost, Peter is going to stand up in the temple and with thousands of people, he's going to say this. I'll have it on the screen. Acts chapter 2. Uh, Verse 23 says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter's just pointing out God is sovereign. He is control, in control. There is no detail that is outside of his control in this whole passion narrative. And so we see the sovereignty of God. But let's move on to the responsibility of man. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. A woman came up to him with a, an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Matthew's very careful to point out this is very, very expensive ointment. Histor- historians tell us it's probably about a year's worth of wages. So whatever you made this year, you get that bottle of perfume. This would be heirloom kind of stuff. And she just cracks it open and pours it over his head. It is an act of worship. It is an act of devotion. It's an act of, she, her, her name is, we know from the other gospels, Mary. It's probably Lazarus's brother or sister, sorry. And, and so she is just so... Um, so grateful, so uh, worshipful of Jesus. She knows that Jesus is the Messiah, which literally translates the, the anointed one. And so she, unlike the disciples, she acts on that and she anoints the anointed one with this costly, sacrificial worship. Now, 
This is the story of every true believer. If you have genuinely trusted in Christ, there is something in you that says, yes, that's right. That's good. He is worthy. He is worthy of my sacrifice. He is worthy of all the costs. He is worthy of my devotion. He is worthy of worship. And so in her, if you are a believer, you should see yourself a little bit. Yes, you're worthy, Jesus. doesn't matter what it costs. And so she anoints him. And she does more than she knows. Jesus is going to point out. But first we turn the camera now to the disciples. And when the disciples saw it, They were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. They get religious about it. They get very pious about it. Why this waste? But but notice what Matthew points out, because the other gospels will, will kind of zoom in on Judas at this point, but that's not what Matthew does. He says all of the disciples. Why? Because that's you and me as well. We wonder, man, is it, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to, to give that kind of level of devotion and sacrifice? And, 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 and by the way, we can kind of justify and say, actually, this could have been used for the poor, Jesus. We know how you love the poor, Jesus. Why, why would you let this woman waste all this money like that? And Jesus surprises them with his answer. Verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, Jesus is not relegating uh, our ministry to the poor. He, that would to go, go against all of his teaching. We, we are called to go to the poor, but, but there are moments and there are times where, where our devotion can be singularly focused on Jesus and our sacrifice and our worship can be focused on Jesus. That's right and good. In fact, she's doing more than she knows. Verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for my burial. She's preparing his body for burial. He's pointing to, which we begin to see now that Jesus is moving in steadfast love. But look at what it says. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We're, we're not told why Judas finally gives up on Jesus. We're, you know, if you ever go to a museum like in Europe and, and, and look at medieval art and you see Jesus and the disciples, you can always find Judas. He's all shifty-eyed. He's got his hand in like a money bag or something like that. But that's not true. Like, we'll see when, when, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they don't all just look to Jesus, like to Judas. Like, it's him. Look at his eyes. Of course he's the one. No. By all outward appearances, he was a legit disciple. I I believe Jesus loved him. I believe Jesus had these intimate conversations with him for three years. I I believe there was probably something in Judas that loved Jesus, but now he's disillusioned. He he was probably a zealot. He wanted a Messiah that would come and conquer Israel's enemies, and it didn't look like Jesus was going to do that. It looked like the opposite. It looked like Jesus was a failure. We're not told why he went, but he's had enough. And so he goes to the chief priests. Remember, they're plotting. Hey, we want to get Jesus. We want to murder Jesus. We just don't want to do it on the Passover. And so their golden opportunity, their ticket comes through the door, and he says, I'm a disciple. I can deliver you 
Jesus, what do you want? What are you going to give me? They're like, is 30 pieces of silver enough? He says, you got it. You got it. Now, let me ask you this question. In fact, I'll put it on the screen. What's your price? What's your price to sell out Jesus? You you have a price. We all have a price. For, for, For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. For the disciples, it's their safety. Things are going to move along and, and it's going to look like, man, that's not safe. I'm out. Maybe it's a relationship. You, you know, it doesn't honor the Lord. You know, uh, he's calling you to something else. And you say, I'll follow you up until this point, Jesus, but, but I can't go any further. Maybe it's your comfort. Jesus, you, you want to, uh, I've read the verses, I, I've memorized it. You, you want me to be comfortable. So wherever my comfort zone is, you can move me anywhere in there. But, but my price is not to go outside of that. Maybe it's financial. You look at, you look at Mary and you're like, man, she, she really is over the top. That's unnecessary. What's your price? Let's be honest with ourselves. We all have a price. The disciples had a price. Everyone has a price in the story. Everyone sells out Jesus at a certain point. And so it would be good for us to just do some reflection and examination, ask the Holy Spirit, what's my price? What is it that I've set a limit on where Jesus can move me in my life? Because when we recognize that, we can begin to come to him in faith and repentance and say, Jesus, I've I've had this idol of safety. I've had this idol of money. I've had this idol of security. And I've said, you can only go so far in my life, but but I want to give it up. I want to follow you wholeheartedly. So it's good to know what your price is. For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver, but the story goes on down in 21 and it says, and as they were eating, so, so now they're gathered, this is a couple days later, they're gathered for the Passover, and as they were eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Like this news is the worst news. This should have been a time of joy and celebration. And, and Jesus says, you're going to betray me. And they're like, maybe they're self-aware enough to know. Maybe it is me. And they're horrified by that thought. You should be horrified by that thought. Lord, I know there's a price. And, and I, don't, I just don't want to bump up into that spot. Is it I, Lord? And it says, one by one. So, so all 12 of them are, are going down the line and, and they're asking with, with, with tears in their eyes because he says they're very sorrowful. Is it I, Lord? He said, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. That, that was all of them. They've all dipped a hand because there would have been one, one day. He, well, all Jesus is saying at this point, he's not calling out Judas. All he's saying is that he's in this room You've fellowshiped with me. You've had meals with me. You're going to betray me. But then look at what he says. Verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written. That's the sovereignty of God. This is the will of God. This is God's purpose and plan for salvation. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And now we see two truths that are always held side by side in the Bible. They are not in contradiction, though in our finite minds they seem like it. We have the sovereignty of God, as it is written. But woe to that man. Judas is responsible. 
You and I are responsible for the way we respond to the gospel. We're responsible for the, for the sins that we commit. We're responsible. We're not robots. He's not violating our will. He says God's plan is going to be accomplished and man is responsible. Woe to that man. See, Peter, when he stood up in Pentecost, he said this. We already read the first half of the verse. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, plural, crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Do you see it? God is sovereign. You're responsible. And we all bear the responsibility for our rebellion and our sin. And you say, well, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't betray Jesus like that. Yes, you would. You have. You continue to do. I do. You betrayed Jesus this week. He is the king and he is the Lord. And if you sinned in thought, word, and deed, you said, I will be my own Lord. I will be my own king. I will turn my back on your reign and rule in my life. We all do this. This is the point. And we're responsible for it. We're responsible. So we see the sovereignty of God. We, we see the responsibility of man. Now let's look at the steadfast love of Christ. He's, you notice he's calm in all this. He's moving resolutely to the cross. It's just hours away now. We see uh, that he is, he is um, going to go to the cross. He's going to do this. And not just for people that he loves. He does love them. But people that are betraying him. One of you will betray me. In fact, all of you will, will betray me. And he still goes. This is what Romans chapter 5, 8 says that uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wasn't waiting for them to get their act together so he would go to the cross and save them. Romans 5, 10 says while we were the enemies of God, he died for us and then he rose for us. This is his steadfast love. And so Jesus says, I want you to remember one thing. And it's not so much the Sermon on the Mount. It's not as care and compassion for the poor or his healing or his miracles. There's one thing that we must always, always, always remember. We see in the next few verses. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus broke bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus is ad-libbing the Passover. You don't ad-lib the Passover. When Jesus goes off script, they would have got wide eyes and they would have all lifted their head and they would have said, what is Jesus doing here? That's not what he's supposed to say. What was he supposed to say? He was supposed to say at that point, this is the bread. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. That's the script. But Jesus says, this is the bread, which is my body, which is my body. And they're like, what is going on? And he's beginning to tell them, hey, all that we've done, all the thing that you thought is so important in your life, it's all just a shadow pointing to this moment. All the lambs, all the blood, it all points to this moment. And so he continues to go off script. So this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. And he's connecting the dots. I'm the lamb. Remember John the Baptist? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The time has come. This is my blood of the covenant. And then he says this, the whole point, everything that's been building up to Matthew's gospel to this point, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So that's the whole point. 
Every religion in the world recognizes that there is something wrong in the world. Particularly, there's something wrong in us. And almost every religion in the world has a, has a system to come up with uh, to, to overcome that wrong. So, so give alms, pray the right prayers, read the right scriptures, do the, see the right festivals, uh, obey these rules, don't do these things, do these things. They, they, they can all come up with a very long and extensive list of how you make up for what's wrong in you. But only one. Only one religious leader, only one person has come with the authority in Jesus to say, I have come to bring you forgiveness. Not on the basis of anything that you can do, but wholly on the basis of what I have done for you. This is my body. This is my blood. This is the one thing. If you get nothing else out of what what I've taught you for the last three years, this is the one thing that you need to know. Your forgiveness is secured by me and not by you. Now we have, why did Jesus put this at the center? Why do we come to this table every week? Why do we do that? Because we forget. Now we don't forget in the sense of like, it's Wednesday and we're like, did God die for me? No. We forget just practically that, that Jesus, one, we were responsible we're actually kind of spiritually there in the moment putting Jesus on the cross. You are the one that is driving the nails. You are the one that is shoving the spear into his side. You are responsible for that. And yet, he willingly went to that out of love for you. This table represents God's proof that you are loved. That your biggest problem in the world has been taken care of. I have a friend, he's a pastor, that uh, whenever someone asks him, how are you doing? I've shared this before. How are you doing? He says, better than I deserve. And they just kind of look at him weird. But every now and again, he's at the coffee shop, and they're like, how are you doing? And he say, better than I deserve. And they'll, they'll, uh, they, they don't know the answer, so they ask the question, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, I deserve death and hell and the wrath of God for my sin, but he took it on himself on the cross. And they're like, oh, okay. Here's your latte. But if that's what this table's about. When you come to this table, you recognize no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what trials, tribulations, struggles you're going through, when you come to this table, you know you're doing better than you deserve. And more than that, you'll do better than you deserve forever and ever and ever. He has purchased your forgiveness. So we are reminded when we sin, Christ died for this. I should repent. We were reminded when we come back that it's not about uh, maybe if God would be happy with me if I gave money or showed up at church and all these things. It's not about that he, that that would be a slap in his face. He says, no, my blood is enough. My body is enough. So never forget this. And so in a moment, we're going to come to this table again. We're going to take the bread and we're going to put it in our mouth and we're going to crush it and we're going to be reminded he was crushed for you. We're going to take the cup and we're going to drink it and we're going to be reminded that he bled for you and he did it joyfully because he loves you and you have the love of God on you and if that's true, then nothing else matters. As Romans chapter 8, 31, if God is for us, then who can be against us? That's what this cup says. God is for you. And because he's sovereign, he's doing all things for his glory and for your joy. He, he knows about your trials. He knows about your struggles. He knows about 
all the things that make your life miserable. And he says, I'm going to use all of it forever. So let us be a people that welcomes everyone to the table. Because at the cross, it's level. There is no one better than the other. And so we say, there's, there's room for you too. You're responsible, but God is sovereign and he has loved you to the end. To that end, let me pray for us. Father, we uh, give you thanks and praise for your grace to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us such a simple reminder, bread and wine, so that every week we can come to this table as your people and remember your great love for us. Though we have limits on our discipleship, you had no limits on your love. And you went to the cross. For the joy set before you, you spilled your blood. Lord, let that just resonate in our hearts and our souls this Advent season. And Holy Spirit, apply that to our lives so that we might change and, and our limits to our discipleship might be expanded. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.